Turn with me to John chapter 16. John chapter 16, we're going to begin reading again in in verse 7, really picking up the second half of last week's sermon. John chapter 16 and verse 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes... He will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, therefore I said he will take what is mine and declare it to you. This is the word of the Lord, let me pray. Father, we ask that you would be pleased to work by your Spirit to help us understand your Word concerning your Son, Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, our Savior and Lord, that we would understand who it is that He is talking about sending, understand who the Holy Spirit is and what it is that He does, what is the work of your spirit and how it is an advantage to us that he has come. Pray that you would illumine our minds and our hearts so that we'd understand your word and love your word, rejoice before it and repent in light of it and that you would be honored in this in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week I I started in this part of our series on the Trinity Um, I started on the person of the Holy Spirit, and as you know, I did three different sermons thus far in the Gospel of John on the Trinity, Uh, one on the Father and the Son, and now the Holy Spirit, and last week's sermon I split into two parts, in part because the doctrine of the Holy Spirit is um, quite mysterious and nebulous for most of us. We, We have a lot of confusion about the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, so I wanted to spend a little more time on him while we're in the Gospel of John, because there is much confusion regarding who he is, and what he does. Last week, I dealt with who he is. We seldom see him as a person any longer. We tend to see him as some kind of force or energy. And so what does it mean that he's a person, equal in power and glory to the Father and the Son, that he is the third person in God? I dealt with that largely last week. But this week, I want to deal with his work because his work is also often misunderstood. Now, I want to be careful because I'm not going to span all of the work of the Holy Spirit. Um, That would be far too much to take on. But just as we're dealing with his person, I want to deal with his work or his mission because it's in his mission that we learn much about his person or who he is. He's generally associated with all manner of craziness. 
There's a great interest among people today to hear the Holy Spirit speak to them. And and here's what I want you to know. People rightly want to know the Holy Spirit. And they want to know how to hear him. And that's a good instinct for we are commanded to hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. But how do we know when we're hearing him? Do you hear my question? How do we know when we're hearing the Holy Spirit speak? To answer this question, we have to answer another question, which is, what is the work of the Holy Spirit? What is his mission? What has he come to do? The work of the Holy Spirit, his mission in being sent by the Father and the Son, tells us about him, which tells us how we know that we're hearing him. So it's important that we understand what he's come to do, for we want to hear what he says to the church. Now, we did begin to look at his mission some last week. We saw that Jesus promised the Holy Spirit would teach them about and witness to himself or to Jesus. The Holy Spirit would come and be a witness to Christ. The Holy Spirit would come and lead them into all the truth regarding Christ. The Holy Spirit would come and teach them about the Son. But I didn't dive too far into that portion of it. Instead, I introduced a couple of questions that I said I wanted to look at this week. So I want to look at the first question that I introduced, or really both the questions I introduced. Look at verse 7 of chapter 16. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. Now notice this phrase, it is to your advantage that I go away. It is to your advantage that I go away. And the first question that I asked in light of that is, Why is it to the advantage of the disciples for Jesus to go away, for the Holy Spirit to come? Why is it to their advantage? How can it possibly be true that having the Holy Spirit is an advantage over having the incarnate Son of God walking with you? That's the first question I asked. And then the next part comes from this same verse. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you, but if I go away, I will send him to you. Here's a second question. Why is the Holy Spirit delayed in coming? What does Jesus mean by the Holy Spirit is delayed in coming until he goes away? Why can't the Holy Spirit come while Jesus is there? Or rather, why won't he come? Now, I told you I wanted to wrestle with those two questions today, and I told you last week to begin thinking about them as you read through John this week. But, but there's a third question I want to answer, ask that is related to these two questions. Look at John 14 and verse 12. John 14 and verse 12. This whole section of this upper room when Jesus' discourse where Jesus is teaching the disciples in the last night of his life really begins in chapter 13 largely but, and goes through 17. But I want you to look here at Chapter 14 and verse 12, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and now follow this, and greater works than these will he do because I'm going to the Father. In other words, what does Jesus mean when he says believers will do even greater works than he has done? I mean, how could that possibly be true? Think about what Jesus has done. Jesus raised the dead. Jesus stilled storms. Jesus walked on the water, on water. So who has done or could do even greater works than those? Who has or could? 2,000 years later, who has done 
or even could do greater works than raising the dead, walking on water, stilling storms, giving the blind their sight, causing the lame to walk, causing the deaf to hear. So what does Jesus mean by even greater works than these you will do? What I'm saying is that all three of these questions are related. All three of these questions are related. Further, these three related questions teach us about the mission and work of the Holy Spirit. They give us a window into the mission and work of the Holy Spirit. They don't answer every detail of it, but I want to get a broad stroke really today. My hope is that as we look at these three questions, we'll be able to see the mission of the Holy Spirit, the work of the Holy Spirit, and thus know him better. And thus know when we're hearing him speak. So that's our outline this morning. It's a terribly unhelpful outliner if you're a note taker. Are you ready? It's, it, but I want to provide it for listening. Here are the two major points. Ready? We're going to answer these three questions. That's A. Isn't that helpful? Three questions. And then B, we're going to basically wrap up what that tells us about his mission and work. Um, so let's look at the three questions. I want to begin our three questions with really the first question that arises in this section of John which is chapter 14 and verse 12. Here's the first question. What does Jesus mean by greater works than these you'll do? Look at verse 12 again. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me. In other words, that isn't just limited to the apostles, though he is first primarily addressing the apostles here. He says, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. How can Jesus say believers will do even greater works than him? What does he mean by that? Here's what I, I want to contend first. My contention is that Jesus does not mean you'll do even more miracles than Jesus did. Okay? Now, the apostles do miracles. They perform miracles. But I don't think primarily he's saying you're going to do even greater miracles, i.e. more miracles than I did. He, I, I don't even think Jesus means that you're going to do even more spectacular miracles than I did. In other words, I don't think Jesus is claiming that the quantity of the miracles, i.e. by that I mean um, supernatural manifestations, are going to be greater than his, nor the quality of the supernatural manifestations are going to be greater than his. So what's he talking about? Well, let me be clear about what he's not talking about. <clears throat> the shenanigans that you see on the Trinity Broadcast Network is not what he's talking about. Okay? They're not more spectacular, they're largely a joke. Used to fleece the poor and the uneducated to get money out of their pockets, and it ought to be abhorrent to you. But what about the charismatic movement, the Pentecostal and charismatic movement? Some of you are familiar with the first couple waves of the charismatic movement, i.e. the Pentecostals, etc., and then came the third wave of the charismatic movement, which most of you have run into in your lifetime, which is what we see with John Wimber and the Vineyard Church movement that came out of Calvary Chapel. They were actually kicked out of Calvary Chapel and began that movement. Um, and many of you have heard beyond that now of the New Apostolic Reformation, which is now occurring, really largely coming out of Bethel in Redding, California. What about these movements? I don't know if you're familiar with the history of them much, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on the history of them, but I'm going to give an example to make a point. John Wimber, who started the third wave charismatic movement, he was actually kicked out of Calvary Chapel by Chuck Smith. Um, 
he started that movement and started what you call the Vineyard Churches. He claimed he had the gift of healing. John Wimber said he had the gift of healing. But his so-called gift was not greater than what Jesus did because his gift of healing, his gift of healing was quite different than what you might expect. He pointed to a text like John 14, 12 and said, we're going to do even greater works and this is the last great outpouring of the Holy Spirit, this charismatic revival we see, and this last great outpouring of the Holy Spirit um, is going to bring in the end, and so he then began to point to his own gift of healing. You know what his gift of healing was? John Wimber claimed that he had the gift that if you had one leg that wasn't quite as long as the other leg, he had the gift of making both legs the same length. That's, that was his gift of healing. Um, I've seen chiropractors advertise that sort of thing. They don't generally call it a gift of healing. But this is what he claimed. I, when I say that, I, I'm, I'm not pulling your leg. <laughs> I'm not. <laughs> I'm sorry, I had to do it. <laughs> listen, listen, here's the point. Whatever you want to claim for the charismatic movement, you cannot claim their works are greater than what Jesus did. You cannot. So what does Jesus mean by greater works? Look at John 14, 12 again, the last phrase. He says this, because, you're going to do greater works than these, because I am going to the Father. Jesus is headed for the cross, for the resurrection, for the ascension to the right hand of his Father. That's what he's referring to. And when he is coronated as king, he will pour out the Holy Spirit. That's what he's referring to when he says, I'm going to the Father. You're going to do even greater works than these because I'm going to the Father. And when he ascends to the right hand of the Father as king, he will pour out the Holy Spirit. That's what he's referencing. So I think he's saying that after the Holy Spirit is poured out, believers will do even greater works than he did. So these greater works, what we know at this point, are tied to what will happen when Jesus dies on the cross, raises from the dead, and ascends to the right hand of the Father and pours out the Holy Spirit. They're tied to that. Thus, I think these greater works are tied to what Jesus means in John 16, 7. So go back there to John 16, 7. He's making one long argument through these chapters, some of which I already made last week. But look what he says. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. Note he says, it's to your advantage that I go away. Why? Why? For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. The Holy Spirit will not come to you. But, but if I go, I will send him to you. So when Jesus ascends to his Father, his people will do even greater works than he did, and it will be to our advantage that he goes because he will send the Holy Spirit. In other words... This coming of the Holy Spirit when Jesus pours out the Holy Spirit and this doing greater works and our advantage are all in some way related to one another. But before I can answer the question of what are the greater works and why it's to our advantage to have the Holy Spirit, I need to answer really the second question I want to answer today, which is why is the Holy Spirit delayed in coming? Why is he delayed in coming? And then I want to wrap it into what are the greater works and the advantage we have. Why is the Holy Spirit delayed in coming? Look at verse six, again, or verse seven, sorry, again. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it's your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, 
the helper will not come. But if I go, I will send him to you. Why does Jesus have to go away before the Holy Spirit can come to us? See, that's the question. The answer to why the Holy Spirit's delayed in coming is because Jesus is still with us. So why does he have to go away in order for the Holy Spirit to come to us? Now, I've sort of answered that already, but I want to press further into it. This does not mean, let me tell you what it does not mean. It does not mean that the Holy Spirit and the Son cannot operate at the same time. Okay? We see them operating together throughout the Gospel of John, don't we? Jesus is anointed by and ministering in the power of the Holy Spirit. So what does it mean? What's well, talking about the way redemptive history plays out? This text, and I'm going to give you a big t- words here, and it's okay. I'll define them. This text is speaking to eschatology, not metaphysics. What do I mean? In other words, it's telling you about the coming of a new era in God's saving promises. Eschatology. Right? The progress of the redemptive history toward the end. It's telling you about the final era, if you will, in God's redemptive plan. It is not telling you about whether or not the Son and the Holy Spirit can can both work on earth at the same time, metaphysics. Can they both be present at the same time? Yes, in fact, they are, because God is one. So clearly they can and do both work on earth at the same time. Jesus is not saying that there's not enough room on earth for both of them. You guys follow me on that? They're one being, one substance, two persons. Jesus is saying that it's not until he goes to the cross, until he raises from the dead on the third day, until he ascends and takes his throne at the right hand of the Father, that the promised Holy Spirit will be poured out. That's what he's saying, that there is this Old Testament promise that in the latter days and the end times, the Holy Spirit would be poured out and would restore the kingdom to Israel and establish God's kingdom on earth. That is throughout Isaiah, that is throughout Ezekiel, that is throughout Joel, etc. What Jesus is saying is that the Holy Spirit will not come on that mission to restore the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Israel, if you will, on earth. He will not come on that mission until after Jesus ascends to the Father and is seated at the right hand and pours out the Holy Spirit. And Peter tells us at Pentecost, if you go through Acts chapter 2, he says at Pentecost that Jesus has received the Holy Spirit and he has poured him out today. That's what you're seeing at Pentecost. So here's what Jesus is teaching about redemptive history and God's saving work among us. Before the great day of the Holy Spirit comes, first the Son comes as the Holy Spirit indwelled Messiah. And then after his death, resurrection, and ascension, he baptizes his people with the Holy Spirit. He pours out the Holy Spirit. Look at John chapter 1. John chapter 1 and verse 32. I'm going to take you through some chapters in the early part of John, so get ready. John chapter 1 and verse 32. And John bore witness. This is John the Baptist speaking. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. Now, this is not the first time in which Jesus receives the Holy Spirit. He is born full of the Holy Spirit. 
The Holy Spirit is brooding over the womb of the Virgin Mary while he's in utero. But this is his anointing for ministry. As the Messiah, the anointed one, the Christ, here he is anointed here for this ministry. The Holy Spirit descends upon him like a dove and it remained on him. And look what John goes on to say. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. See, he's going to come and baptize the Holy Spirit, and I've seen him born witness that this is the Son of God. See, Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah, the Anointed One, who is himself filled with the Holy Spirit and dwelt by the Holy Spirit, who will pour out or baptize his people with the Holy Spirit. Now look at John chapter 3. John chapter 3 and verse 34. For he whom God sent, has sent, that's the Son, that's the Messiah. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives, notice this, the Spirit without measure. Jesus is the one who has the Spirit without measure and the one who gives the Spirit without measure. He's the one who has the Spirit descend upon him and the one who baptizes with the Spirit. Now look at John 4.10 since we're right there. Jesus speaking to the woman of Samaria and this scene in which he's asking her for a drink of water, etc. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. In other words, the, the Son, Jesus, the Messiah, is going to give you living water. And what is that living water? That living water is the Holy Spirit, who gives you life. How do I know that? Look at John chapter 7. John chapter 7, and look at verse 37. And I'm passing over a lot of text, folks, so... So, you know, it's just a quick overview. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. This is, this is by the way, in the temple that this is happening. And there is a temple motif going throughout the Gospel of John where Jesus is being presented as the temple of God himself. He says, Let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart, will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were received, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now notice the themes that are picked up here. I actually think what's happening here is, I think that the, um, the punctuation ought to change. If you look at verse 37, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me to drink, because he is the temple of Ezekiel from whom the river is pouring that waters the whole earth. I think he's referring to himself here, comma, after drink, whoever believes in me, period. In other words, you believe in me, you come to me and drink, and then, capital A, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water, I think that's a reference to out of Christ's heart will flow rivers of living water. Now, that's debatable. There's an Eastern tradition and a Western tradition. I'm picking up the Western tradition. I think because of the context of the Gospel of John, it's, it's more accurate. But here, here's the bottom line. This, this 
river of living water that's flowing out, I think, out of Christ's heart because he is the temple and he pours out the spirit that waters the earth. This water that's pouring out, verse 39, this he said about the spirit, the Holy Spirit. He gives the spirit, that life-giving water he offered to the woman at the well. He gives the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive, yet they had not received it. For as, the, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because what? Jesus was not yet glorified. In other words, he had not yet ascended to the right hand of his Father, so he had not yet poured out the Spirit in this way. So the Holy Spirit, I think, will pour out of the heart of the Son, the true temple and water of the earth, and this is why Jesus is saying, you will do greater things than I. He's not talking about greater miracles in the sense of supernatural manifestations. He's talking about the greatest of all miracles, that the water of salvation will go to every tribe and tongue and people on earth. I think he's saying that the nations will be watered with the Holy Spirit and thus receive eternal life as you preach the gospel by his power. Now look at John chapter 20. John chapter 20. And verse 21, Jesus comes to the disciples after his resurrection. I'm not going to unwrap one of the difficulties in this passage much. I'm going to make an assertion, and if I ever preach the Gospel of John, which I hope to get to someday, I'll, I'll get to it. But verse 21, Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. Now notice what he says. As the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. Now the Father sent him as the spirit and dwelt one among men to seek and save the lost. Even so I'm sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. I think this is an acted out parable pointing forward to Pentecost. And I say that because Jesus has already said he will not send the Holy Spirit until his glorification to the right hand of the Father. I think Jesus is telling them that the Father sent me, now I'm sending you, and you can only do what you're doing in proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ to every tribe and tongue and nation if you are those who are clothed with power from on high, clothed with the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit comes in power to clothe the apostles for their mission work at Pentecost, doesn't he? And the Holy Spirit is the river of life, I think, pouring out of the heart of Jesus, the true temple and watering the whole earth as we proclaim the gospel. So it is for this reason that the Holy Spirit is delayed. For this age of the Spirit in which God's kingdom is established across the earth cannot begin until the Son has taken his throne. Until the Son of Man has ascended to the right hand of the Father and received from him right, all glory and power, the right to rule the nations, etc. So this leads me to our last question. How can it be to our advantage for Jesus to leave and the Holy Spirit to come? How is the Holy Spirit more advantageous to us than Jesus being with us? How could the Holy Spirit's coming be better than having the incarnate Son with us Go back to John chapter 16 and look at verse 7 and following. We're going to keep going. But if I go, at the end of verse 7, 
I will send him, the Holy Spirit, to you. It's to your advantage because I'll send him. And when he comes, here's why it's going to be your advantage. Listen to what he will do. Here comes the advantage. When he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Now John is going to break that down. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you'll see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. But if I go, I'll send him to you, and he'll be to your advantage. It'll be to your advantage to have him sent to you. And you will do greater works than I did, John 14, 12. What does he mean? Because when the Holy Spirit comes, notice what he'll do. He will convict the world. Start there. The Holy Spirit will convict the world. Not 120 folks or so in the ancient Near East. I'm not trying to minimize the work of Christ at all, but maximize what Jesus is sending the Holy Spirit to do. He's going to pour out the Spirit so that the gospel spreads across the whole earth. He's not just going to convict the Jews. He's going to convict the world. Every tribe and tongue and nation. And he's going to convict the world. What does that mean? It's to convince or to prove. And it isn't talking about an external proof in the sense that they're going to look at the argument and say that's intellectually satisfying. It's talking about convincing them or convicting them in their heart. So they know it's true. They rely upon it. They, they don't just assent to it intellectually, but they rest on this truth. And what is this that the Holy Spirit is doing? He's taking this external word about Jesus, and he's driving it internally into our hearts, the hearts of God's people. He takes this external calling of the word Jesus, as the incarnate Son of God, is walking around preaching to them from outside of them. But now the Holy Spirit will take that word and drive it into them. And he will do that convincing on a worldwide scale. It will not just be some converts in a tiny nation in the ancient Near East. He will convict the world, every tribe and tongue and nation. And Jesus breaks that down a bit more. What does he say? He will convince them, verse 9, concerning sin because they do not believe in me. Now, I think John Calvin says rightly what he means here by concerning sin because they do not believe in me. Listen to what he says. By these words, John, or Jesus condemns the corruption and depravity of human nature so that we should not think there's a single drop of uprightness in us without Christ. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me, the Holy Spirit will drive into our hearts, convince you that without Christ, there's not a single drop of righteousness in you. Now look at John 16, 10. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer, the Holy Spirit will convince us that as the righteous one at the right hand of the Father, Jesus is the standard of righteousness, and further, his righteousness is credited to us by looking to him, by trusting in him, by relying to him, that we have no righteousness apart from him, but he is our righteousness. The Holy Spirit will convince us of that. He'll drive it into our hearts. John Bunyan, um, some of you have heard of him, a famous Baptist of the 17th century, wrote The Pilgrim's Progress, a book you ought to read at some point in your life if you have not. He struggled with whether or not Christ was really his righteousness. 
He writes that bo- about that both in his book, Grace Abounding the Chief of Sinners, which is kind of his autobiography, and in the Pilgrim's Progress, as I think Christian really reflects his own life. And here's what he says about how the Holy Spirit convinced him. One day, he, as I was, he says this, but one day as I was passing into the field with some dashes on my conscience, fearing yet that all was not right, suddenly there, this sentence fell upon my soul, your righteousness is in heaven. I thought I saw with the eyes of my soul Jesus Christ at God's right hand. There was my righteousness. Wherever I was or whatever I was doing, God could not say of me that I lacked his righteousness for my righteousness was ever before him. Moreover, I saw that it was not my good frame of heart that made my, my righteousness better, nor my bad frame that made my righteousness worse. For my righteousness was Jesus Christ himself, the same yesterday, today, and forever. And Bunyan went on to say, Now did the chains fall off my legs indeed. I was loosed from my afflictions and irons. My temptations also fled away. From that time, those dreadful scriptures of God quit troubling me. Now I went home rejoicing for the grace and love of God. See, what greater work is there than this? What greater work is there than this? This is the great advantage of the Holy Spirit coming. Look at John 16, 11. Concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. That's not concerning your judgment. Who's judged? The ruler of this world, Satan. The Holy Spirit will convince us that we are no longer under judgment, but that Satan has fallen under judgment. Christ now reigns victorious. What good news indeed, for if Christ has put Satan under his feet, then he will soon crush Satan under our feet. Christ reigns, and his Spirit has united us to him, and we cannot be separated from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And the Holy Spirit is proclaiming to the world, into the hearts of folks in every tribe and tongue and nation, to whom the gospel is preached, that Jesus Christ is Lord, that Jesus is their righteousness and hope. So this is what I think leads to the answer, why is it to our advantage that the Holy Spirit comes? How do we do greater works than these? Because the Holy Spirit has been poured out to take the message of Jesus Christ across the earth so that men and women and children of every tribe and tongue and nation might be saved to the glory of God our Father. So this leads to what I said about the mission and work of the Holy Spirit, kind of to summarize this in my second major point, what is the work of the Holy Spirit then? What is his mission? I picked up on some of that last week and then this morning. I, I want to say this, though. The church, through hard-won exegesis and synthesis of the biblical witness, has come to a typical way of speaking to this. Historically, we've come to a typical way of speaking to it. As we speak to the, the work of the Holy Spirit, it is typical historically to speak of the work of the Holy Spirit or of the, um, the three persons, really, in God in, in the order of the Apostles' Creed. Thus we speak of the Father and creation, the Son and redemption, the Holy Spirit and sanctification. Now the work of those three persons in God is indivisible because they're one God. But while their work is indivisible, we do want to distinguish the work of each person. We don't want to divide their work, but we do want to distinguish 
the work of each person. And the focus of the work of the Holy Spirit is related to his name. He's the Holy Spirit. As the Son is the one who appropriately is sent by the Father to bring you redemption with the Father and adoption as children of the Father, so the Holy Spirit is the one who appropriately proceeds from the Father and the Son to sanctify you or make you holy, to apply Christ's benefits to you, to apply Christ to you. That's the Holy Spirit's mission, our sanctification. So how do we define the idea that the Holy Spirit has come for our sanctification. That's why Jason read the Heidelberg Catechism, question 53 this morning, the question and answer. Um, I want you to see how the Dutch said it. Can you put it back up there? Is that on a slide? There you go. So you can read with me because you don't have a Bible in front of you um, or a, a catechism in front of you either, and so you can't follow along. What do you believe concerning the Holy Spirit? First, that the Spirit with the Father and the Son is eternal God. That's what I was working on last week. Second, what I've been working on some last week and this week, that the Spirit is given also to me, so that through true faith, He makes me share in Christ and all His benefits, comforts me, and will remain with me forever. Do you hear that? The Holy Spirit's mission is to make me share in Christ and all His benefits, to comfort me, to remain with me forever. He's the one who comes to unite me to the Son through faith, and so to the Father as well. All the benefits of redemption, all the benefits of sonship, of eternal life, of fellowship with God, are found in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and the Holy Spirit mystically and really unites me to the Son of God and the Father so that I can be said to be indwelled by the whole of the Trinity. That ought to just stop us in our tracks. The Holy Spirit gives life in Christ because he is the breath that carries along the word of Christ into your hearts and minds. It is the Holy Spirit who leads the prophets and apostles into what? All the truth concerning Jesus who carried them along as they wrote the Holy Scriptures and thus why we can call our Bibles the Spirit-inspired or God-breathed Word. It is the Holy Spirit who powerfully pours forth from the heart of Christ and waters the whole world as Jesus works in the Spirit by His church through the proclamation of the gospel of the world. And the gospel now spreads throughout the world to every tribe and tongue and nation. The Son was purchasing redemption and justification, adoption, new creation, glory. And the Holy Spirit is the one who applies it to you. Now, when we look at the Trinity in Paul next week, we'll see him lay this out with more specificity. But to return to the point with which I began our sermon on the Holy Spirit, there's, there's much talk about hearing the Holy Spirit. People want to hear him speak to them. And I think we all rightly want to hear the Holy Spirit speak to us. In fact, there are multiple commands, as I said at the beginning, in the Scripture that we ought to listen to what the Spirit says to the churches because the Holy Spirit does speak to us. He does. But do you want to know what His voice sounds like? I mean, how do you know His voice unless you know what it sounds like, right? My wife knows my voice when I start to speak as I can be in the other room because she knows what my voice sounds like. She can differentiate it. 
Not as much from my son anymore. He's starting to sound a lot like me. But from my daughter, but that should be easy enough, right? She can differentiate my voice, though, from, from Jason's, for example, because she knows my voice. So how do we know the voice of the Holy Spirit? How do we know it? You want to know how to hear him and know when he's speaking to you? Then listen for this. What is he speaking about? Did you hear that? What is he speaking about? Look at John 16, 12. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. That doesn't mean all the truth about every bit of knowledge in the world. He's not saying the spirit's going to you know, bring you the truth about calculus. He's talking about all the truth about Jesus. He will drive you in, or guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So what's the Holy Spirit's speech going to do? Tell you about who? Jesus. Glorify who? Jesus. All that the Father has is mine, therefore I said he will take what is mine and declare it to you. 1 John chapter 4 and verse 1, also the same author Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they're from God, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. You ready? Every spirit that confesses that Jesus, Messiah, has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of Antichrist. So what does the voice of the Holy Spirit speaking in your heart and mind sound like? Sounds like the word of God cutting to your heart and proclaiming to you the love of the Father and sending Jesus Christ, his Son, to be our Lord and Savior. It sounds like the word of God giving you ears to hear and eyes to see that Jesus Christ is a sufficient Savior, that his grace is greater than all your sin. It sounds like the word of God giving you a growing desire to be like Christ. Because you're deep, deeply thankful for your salvation in him and because it's now your joy to honor him. The voice of the Holy Spirit sounds like God enlarging your faith and repentance and gratitude and joy as you're brought to an ever-increasing understanding of all that God is for you in Christ. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. That's what his voice sounds like. His voice sounds like what he's breathed right here. His word. And it ever points you to the word, Jesus Christ, to the glory of God the Father. Through the word he inspired, he speaks the gospel of Jesus Christ into hearts and minds, giving you life and faith and fellowship with our tri triune Lord. May we hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray. Father, we ask, we ask that we would be a people who Hear your spirit speaking. We hear your word reverberating in our hearts and minds that we would know that it is written to exalt your Son, to bring us to faith in Him, to enlarge that faith in Him, to see Him as our righteousness our hope, our King, our Savior, so that you, Father, would be glorified. 
We pray that you would help us. Pray that you would help those who aren't believers who come so many Sundays of the year that are here even this morning, Father, that that your Spirit would give them ears to hear and eyes to see what he's saying to them about your Son, Jesus Christ. Pray, Father, for those of us who are believers that we would give great thanks that your Spirit indwells us and speaks to us concerning your Son so that we might know where our hope is found, so that we might know where our rest is found. We pray that we would trust evermore in him. For the glory of God our Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.